Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast, produced by Tell Me Studios for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm Fraser McGrewer, and I'm here with Peter Coghill and Chris Ragg of Aleph Insights. And this week, we're discussing the recent saga in the UK surrounding the poor service provided by Southern Railways. So, Chris, can you start us off and, and just give me an overview of, of what, what's been happening with Southern Railways? What's, what's the issue? Uh, yes, so um, this is a, a UK uh, rail franchise that um, service a portion of the southeast of uh, England and bring a lot of commuters into um, London. Uh, and there has been an a ongoing sort of labour dispute uh, which has heavily disrupted their um, ability to... to bring people into into london which has led to people losing their jobs and um you know not not being able to um meet important uh commitments of theirs and has just generally been very disruptive okay so uh, a railway service that's not working very well and, and also i believe one of the ironic thing is things is that it's a sometimes on purpose the trains don't stop at certain stations um, because they want to make sure that they're fulfilling the obligations of arriving at a destination at their end destination on time as they just skip through certain stations sometimes so people can't get a train so you've got a train service that's not providing yeah it's been very acrimonious and um, you know partly under under without going into all the detail underlying it is a, um, a dispute around whether or not um, you should have doors that can be opened by the driver of the train uh, with unions um, not wanting uh, their the guards on the trains to be um, cut out of the work of opening the doors. That's, that's a slightly crass simplification of, of the labour dispute, but that's one of the central central issues. Okay. How did this happen? How did we get into this situation? What's the underlying causes of this? What went wrong? Yeah, so I th- so I think this is an interesting uh, case in point in terms of um, government decision making and how um, so currently you know um, these franchises uh, um, are sort of contracted over set periods of time and um, companies are given uh, the rights to operate that rail service for for a period of time. So I think the reason why why we were interested uh, in this particular issue. Um, is around how how these decisions get made to award large contracts like this, and how they sometimes they sometimes go go wrong. So, what did go wrong? I mean, has something gone wrong here? Yeah, I think. Well, I, this I think relates well to um, a previous podcast we made about the predicting success of any given investment or any venture, uh, and in the, the conclusion there was. It's hard if it's difficult to measure, which sounds pretty unprofound, pretty pretty obvious. But um, the the in these in these big contracts, um, it is difficult to predict how any one given uh, service provider is going to perform over their tenure. But um, you have quite a lot of data to work with, and train your trains are inherently intended to be predictable and measurable. Um, so I think what's one of the one of the failings with uh, the way that the contract for Southwest Rail, Southwest Rail uh, has occurred is with the definition of how the success metrics 
are defined. Are they not the same for every franchise, for every... I would suspect not. I think that because these contracts come up at different times, then they will learn from the previous one. And so ideally they'll get better over time, but mm. this particular one has failed. So, for example, there, there's been a... There was a, uh, a few months ago, they, they cancelled many crucial services at sort of rush hour times to improve their overall percentage of train trains arriving on time. So mm. rather than address the fundamental mechanical issues or whatever that was causing trains to be late, they just cancelled the late trains um, that were routinely late. Yeah, yeah. So they so they, they would meet some contractual constraint, like get 80% of trains to arrive within 10 minutes or whatever whatever it is. They solved that by making the problem worse for many of the many of their customers. Yeah, this is, you know, let's pre- we did pre- produce a million tonnes of tractor this year. It's just one tractor, yes. right? Is that yeah, kind of thing, that yeah? kind of thing, yeah. And I think that's that's a problem inherent with the um, awarding of these um, government service contracts is that uh, you you award them for a period of time and it is extremely difficult to amend those contracts or um, renege on those contracts. Uh, so essentially what you're doing is you are fixing a soviet-style five-year plan for a, a particular thing so you when you set those criteria you have to you have to understand all the the different possibilities that occur and make it sufficiently flexible that if you need something extra or you want to change something in a particular way you have the capacity to to do that without being financially penalized by the provider of the service and I mean, uh, within within government for big service contracts, and this is prevalent in IT service provision as much as other services. Um, there's a sort of um, slightly flippant opinion that some companies uh, will remain nameless. They have reputations for provide you know, uh, undercutting everybody, provide you know offering the cheapest uh, a cheaper service at a given given uh, given rate, and then as soon as they're awarded the contract, say uh, turn around and say, well, actually this is completely undeliverable as is. Here's a list of changes, and mm. therefore then inflate the price. And government is in, d- disinclined to reject after the bid because it costs them a lot of money to recompete uh, and it's it's reputation extremely damaging whereas it's easier just to under the radar in you know increase the increase the budget a bit so is this i mean as you're saying this is not just with um provision of rail services this is an issue in all sorts of areas uh of where services are being provided now is it is it so is the issue that government in this case can and should be better in the way it organises its research and prioritises um, how it awards contracts? Or is it that these are problems or issues that government shouldn't be dealing with? Because, yeah. for example, I just in the, in the case of rail services, I, I think, yes, government should be involved, but in a different way. I don't think it should be a franchise system. I think there should be, I must admit, I prefer more kind of nationalised, uh, centralised sort of service. But... I mean, so what's what's I, well? Well, I, I mean, in a sense, this is a little bit of a of a um, a, a defence of the of the faceless civil servant that um, so many tabloid newspapers like to like to castigate, and uh, a, a sort of insight into the constraints that they that they operate, uh, you know, beneath, and they they have to to face. Um, there is, there, you know. Often there are no um, uh, perfect decisions, but um, what they 
what they need to do is balance a whole set of set of things so you know they um they utilize very often with these types of contract awards they utilize a set of uh criteria based measures so everybody everything has to be um competed you know equitably uh so you you can't you know so you can't give contracts to companies that you know you happen to have a relative on the board of or something um so so there is this uh, enforced criteria based approach which on the face of it uh looks like it should be objective and and should work well but in practice often what what happens is um you have the criteria for what you um what you consider good and you score everybody against but actually undercutting that uh, on an emotional level there's the kind of intuitive decisions going on that that uh that we make outside of these these criteria so a good example is um for job applications and interviews in across the civil service there there are a set of criteria that you assess people against so that you can't just give it to somebody who looks like you or went to your school or whatever um but uh having been on both ends of these processes but both as an interviewee and an interviewer um it's apparent that you know these criteria while people probably faithfully try to apply them there is still an element a human element to this you know to the decision making which is i've sort of got a warm feeling about that person can't quite describe it to myself but i'm going to reverse engineer my scores for the criteria based on on that and i think this is all going on at a subconscious level i don't think people are are fixing things but they are making a a a more emotional judgment first and then using the criteria uh to establish that and that presents a very interesting problem okay well this sounds like familiar aleph territory because this feels like you know trying to apply um and develop the best processes that we can and apply them to what is an imperfect world that something will always go wrong somewhere um as best but that's no reason i have learnt for someone like myself just throw my hands up in the air just go oh well let's just employ my mate from school then i'm glad you're learning something <laughs> thank you thank you so uh so where do we go from here i mean is that it we have we solved it well i think i i, I don't think we've solved it because there's still a lot more work to do and uh, chris mentioned that um job interviews a good example it's very difficult to produce a, a fair and but but quick and cheap to implement assessment mechanism for working out who the best candidate is but if we boil it down to sort of really fundamental say 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 we want to buy or hire a thing to add some value and there's options for uh, what 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 thing we can get it could be a person or it could be a service or it could be a product um the the the, the, sort of the main two factors are what are the chances of that succeeding because there's always some risk in delivery so the the program might just fail to deliver what it says it's going to deliver mm. and what the overall impact positive impact that or value that that is going to add so the the, the product of those two things give us a sort of expected outcome expected value um uh, and by breaking these down further it's possible then to consider where the value is and how likely it is to succeed so this is this is this is manifest in assessment uh, processes like job interviews and ones that we regularly go through with with bids, they they assess the commercial viability of the of the bid. And they're saying, well, we've these this company has delivered bids like this before. Um, they've had um, success rate of this, um, 
and the impact it's like well we we understand logically what they're proposing and the value that they're proposing it's going to provide us uh so we can sort of get a feel for uh how much how, what they expected return is going to be but there's still as chris says very very heuristics based and it's um it's very difficult to abstract yourself um from from your personal opinions of things and if you if you've had a, a bad bad brush with somebody but they are best candidate then you, the, your your opinion of them will be will be tainted and I, th I think there's also um, a, a need to understand. So, you know, yes, you can you can talk about the likelihood of um, achieving success in a contract and build set criteria to maximise your chance of, of making the right decision about the award of something. Um, but you also need to understand your own organisational dynamics and, and uh, you know, human nature and the way these... Um, these criteria tend to be uh, applied by people. After all, it is people doing them. You know, we're not necessarily measuring um, sort of quantitative data about things. It's people applying judgment, and um, and you need to set up processes that enable you uh, to counteract this subconscious bias that's uh, that's um, you know likely to to be going on. And I think you've also got to understand. Um, the th things like particularly for large government decisions the political factor that, that comes into these decision making making processes you know interjected by the ministers within departments which is you know there might be the optimal decision but if it uh, involves a company from country x that might be unpalatable to our public and so the best the best decision uh, may not be able to be made because uh, the political calculation mm. um, prevents that from from being chosen, and so you choose a less desirable option to meet those political requirements. Okay, I think I think we've more or less covered it uh, from my perspective. Maybe you don't agree. I don't know, um, Peter. Yeah, well, I think there's the, looking forward. I mean, because um, I want to come at this in a different way. But go on, yeah, you go ahead. Looking forward, I mean, the, 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 these current processes have to be very light touch in order to be quick enough. Uh, and cheap enough to implement. So, say you, you we propose a bid of for a piece of work that's a hundred thousand pounds. You don't want to spend more than a few hundred pounds assessing all of those bids because the the proportion that you're spending in running the competition starts to be a significant proportion of the overall value that you're trying to get out of your 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 the cost of this project. So it has to be light touch. But that's that's largely because of the availability of reliable data. And you're relying entirely on what people have said in their bid and a bit about what you know about them from other from other works. But the, this modern world, we routinely collect a lot more information about ourselves and about other people that could be rolled into this. So rather than just looking at your, rather than just considering how much you like a company or you think you can trust them to give you a, a, a heuristic feeling of how good they are or how likely they are to deliver a project, um, you you could you could say well let's 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 actually look at your entire portfolio and how successful you have been in projects of this size of this complexity in this area etc. Um, who are the who who in your consort who who is in the team? Look at their individual success rating. So what's their individual portfolio of success of performance over their entire working life? And so you can you can you potentially can get a lot more granular if you can find the data. 
So um, the Ministry of Transport should be coming to our left and saying, right, sort this out for you, our, 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 our bid process. You know, no, that's, be, that's exactly what you do, that kind of stuff, right? We'd be delighted to be commissioned by yeah. uh, but, but, DFT. But, but, but I think as well it's sort of, um, you know, it's trying to give uh, an understanding that, um, you know, we live in a massive blame culture uh, at, at the moment and every public decision that goes wrong um there's this requirement to personify the blame, right, mm. and find the chief executive of some health authority or child, child services department or a minister and and have them held personally accountable for this. And I think it's it's about viewing it as being much more systemic and, you know, saying that, you know, the civil service and government in general, you know, is, is, not, is not full of blundering incompetence it's full of people who are broadly representative of of who they um who they serve and uh they are you know they are applying the same kinds of decision making principles that that we apply and yes they can be improved but people should not be personally castigated okay hmm. uh fair point although i think people get I, th- I think one of the reasons why it happens is is just people get so angry when they can't get yes, to work and, and, and they, end, they do it. Yeah. Yes. But look, I just want to shift focus slightly because I know ostensibly we're talking about trains, but really we're talking about um, analysis here of the the research process. But nonetheless, I just want to uh, round this off just by thinking, I was going to say, well, which country has the best trains in the world? Well, I'm not going to ask that. Mm. What I want to ask is, um, from your personal experience, what has been your es- best ever uh public transport uh experience could have been trains could have been something else um in, in in could be in the uk could be another country is anyone i've got a couple but anything spring to mind immediately yeah so um uh, well not necessarily a good experience but a a slightly amusing one uh which um involved uh going on a sleeper train uh from brussels through to east east germany mm. um and um the 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 train broke down so it was it was a deutsche bahn train and it broke down over overnight um so there's obviously this stereotype of the the highly efficient um german transport system uh and the guard came through uh and i sort of looked out the window and realized we weren't where we were supposed to be at that time of of day uh and um said Oh, it's all the Belgium's faults. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And Peter? Well, I did a very similar trip. Um, a friend of mine and I, we travelled from um, North Germany uh, all the way through Germany down into Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia, um, or, or Czech Republic by that point. Um, so down to Prague. And uh, it was a great journey. The first train, the first German train I ever got was late. So that the stereotype is definitely blown out of the water for me. But when we got to the border, we had to cross deck onto a completely different uh, rundown train. And it was, it, was, it was like something out of a movie. It was going from a sort of plush, modern Western Europe onto this very shaky old sort of Soviet era uh, rolling stock. And it, was, it, it had a sort of poetic, um sort of nature to it mm-hmm. and we, we we were joined in our little it was like it was one of the old star carriages with the separate booths with seats facing each other um and we were joined in our in our compartment by two complete non-english speaking uh western europeans and i think they were probably czech mm. but the first thing they did was to start babbling hello and being friendly to us and offering us loads and loads of vodka so it Brilliant. felt right it yeah felt no. totally right. i like those yeah those old carriages that we'll all be familiar with yeah. um 
one of the, one of the best experiences I had actually was in Honduras when I lived in Honduras, where they've got this instit- Central American institution, which is this private company called Hetman, which runs a network of coaches throughout Central America. And it, again, talking about what you were saying with the German example, this was kind of the opposite of that. It was so well run, so efficient and great food and the seats were so comfortable. And and because I was in a developing country, I had the money to, to go first class. And I had this marvellous reclining chair. And I remember just sleeping so well, wake up in the morning in this sort of cloud forest in the middle of Guatemala. And it was just a perfect experience. And, and I guess the other one is um, sort of rather more cliche, but in um japan just traveling mm. on trains in mm. japan is just an absolute joy and it, it, you do just feel it well it, it, it is everything you expect it to be that was my experience you mm. know so uh so yeah so and i won't ask the boring question like why can't we be like the japanese and have our trains like that so that could you know i'm not sure if we could get any value from from that discussion tens of know. tens of billions or hundreds of billions of pounds might have something to yeah, do with it there's but, the answer yeah. okay right chaps thank you very much indeed anything you want to add peter yes actually there is um <laughs> it's not that i always try to grab the last word but uh, it's just that i never find a way of weaving it in but the the i think an important just jump to the defense of our for you know our former colleagues in the civil service again i think the the uh, to to try to sort of explain some of the bad press that they get, these the, the the government is going through the same learning process that big business does when it's outsourcing or hiring in services. It you know big business makes big mistakes, only it's much less public. Um, so the 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 learning journey that's gone through is often the same process where you know we've tried to do everything national, then we've tried to outsource everything. And we've we're now balancing back again, and so there are alternatives to fully nationalised and, and 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 fully privatised. You are, there were different ways of carving up the service architecture so mm. that the right parts are retained within government and the right parts are, are privatised, and that those balance points are being found in various large projects. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, great. So thank you very much, guys. Thanks as always. Um, you've been listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. Um, with Chris Rag and with Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights. I'm Fraser McGrewer. Thank you as always for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.